Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In my cyber travels last week, I ran across a blog, an online column, uh, that was linked to a website that teaches foreigners how to speak English, uh, technically British English. It caught my eye because the writer's trying to explain how to insult people in English. So that got to be worth a look, right? Um, I already knew that at first glance this week's gospel lesson sounds a whole lot like Jesus is insulting this poor foreign woman, a, a Canaanite, who just came to him for help. Well, the article's introduction said, when you think about it, insulting someone in English is actually quite tricky. You want to express a certain amount of disdain with your English insults, but also maybe shade it with their particular flavor of annoying. Sometimes you need to gently insult someone and also convey a bit of humor. Getting those gradations of insult can be tough in a foreign language. So it starts with uh, insulting names. So it says, let's say you need to call someone a name, but you don't necessarily want to get into a fight. And then it lists a couple of, couple of things that I can't repeat. Names that, yeah, probably uh, might cause a physical confrontation. Names that would never be taken lightly and would be sure to raise your blood pressure. Then it lists some things that you could call a person that would be a little safer, but still get your point across. Like, don't be an idiot, or a jerk, or a moron, or stupid. And she adds that English-speaking people have a funny habit of insulting themselves. For example, oh, I'm such an idiot, I forgot my reusable shopping bag. And she adds that, well, that does seem a bit extreme, but it's perfectly normal. Well, I thought it was perfectly normal. I thought it was perfectly normal for everybody, not just people that speak English, but maybe not. There was also a link in the article to the top 10 English jokes. Uh, I know, right? Had to click. And so if English was your second language or your third language or your fourth language, and you found yourself in a situation where you had to speak English, but you wanted to be the life of a party without maybe having to put the lampshade on your head, well, here's some jokes you can have on hand to use just in case. The author notes that, um, I won't bore you with the whole list, okay, um, but the, uh, she says English like to joke about doctors. <clears throat> I went to the doctor the other day and said, have you got something for wind? So he gave me a kite. Well, that's kind of funny. Two fish in a tank. One says, how do you drive this thing? Hmm. She explains that it's very common to have a fish tank in English households, so that one is a classic one-liner. Yeah, that was it. That was a whole joke. How do you drive this thing? <laughs> classic, huh? I, you know, I'm thinking maybe Don Rickles was never a big hit over there. The Brits just don't seem to do... American funny. You know, something that wasn't funny at all is the desperate woman who comes to Jesus this morning, a mother who's willing to break all the rules no matter what people thought of her. <clears throat> she was willing to take chances and make a great leap of faith to find help for her demon-plagued daughter. And it sounds at first like Jesus goes all Don Rickles on her. JC sounds anything but PC. Now, he had his moments from time to time with the Pharisees, the church leaders who are always on the attack, but still, a pleading mom? But this is no ordinary doting Jewish mother. In fact, she's not Jewish at all, and Jesus isn't in Galilee. 
He and his disciples have left the region of Galilee for the first time that we know of anyway, and he's led his disciples north and west to the region of Tyre. Tyre was a seaport on the Mediterranean, deep in Canaanite territory. There's hardly another Jew in sight. Now, the Canaanites were Gentiles. They were pagan unbelievers known for Baal worship and more than a dozen other gods, including Moloch, the god of fire. Moloch is mentioned in the Old Testament as one of the most prevalent foreign gods. It's depicted as a, a man with a bull's head and a literal fire in his belly. Uh, Worship of Moloch included uh, sexual rituals and even firstborn sacrifices in exchange for for, uh, financial prosperity and future children. It was so disgusting to God that there are over half a dozen specific warnings to God's people in the Old Testament commanding them to stay away from it, in one case under penalty of death. It was the worst of the worst. Now, these were descendants of the people who were supposed to have been completely wiped out by Joshua when he first uh, brought the Israelites into the Promised Land, but weren't. And not surprisingly, they became bitter enemies of the Jews and a constant source of trouble. Intermarriage with the pagans around them was forbidden from the beginning, and for good reason. It often resulted in a blending of religions or even worship of more than just uh, one god. Not a good way to earn the favor of the one true and only God, is it? We're not told why Jesus left the familiar. Uh, we only know that he, we do know he just had another run in with the Pharisees, this time over some uh, ritual hand washing issues. So maybe Jesus just needed a breath of fresh air to clear away the frustration. Did Jesus ever get frustrated? Now think about it. He was being rejected by the very people he'd come to save, wasn't he? He was true God, but he was also true man. Uh, he, he felt and experienced what we feel and experience, including rejection, but without giving in to sin and temptation. The funny thing is, he got his breath of fresh air in a very unexpected way. Uh, a Canaanite woman comes to him, crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, reading this with 21st century eyes, uh, it doesn't really seem there's anything particularly noteworthy about a woman approaching a man to ask for help. But seeing it through the eyes of a first century Jew, it would have been nothing, nothing less than scandalous. A woman would rarely even address a man in public, uh, let alone shout out to him. Uh, second, the woman was a Canaanite, a descendant of those people who were driven out of the promised land. And by rejecting the one true God and embracing idol worship, these people lived in close proximity with evil. And that always invites demonic oppression. Her situation was particularly desperate because it involved her own child. Love and desperation can drive us to do things we might otherwise not even try. Desperation is nothing to joke about. It's a powerful emotion that can cross even religious barriers. And this poor mother was no exception. She died, uh, no doubt had heard about Jesus, had heard about his miracles. She was aware of the claims that he was the Jewish Messiah. She even appealed to him as the son of David, very Jewish reference. David's name was well known in her world as well. 1 Kings 5.1 tells us that Hiram, king of Tyre during the reigns of David and Solomon, was, quote, ever a lover of David. So there'd been some ancient connections, <clears throat> but still... Jesus doesn't answer her. 
Now, if you'd been Matthew, or Mark, he reports this meeting as well, would you have included everything that happened during this encounter? Everything that Jesus said? Or would you maybe report the miraculous uh, exorcism of the woman's daughter that's about to happen and just kind of gloss over Jesus' apparent disrespect of mom? It does seem like Jesus was a little hard on her. The disciples see what's going on, and they, they tell Jesus, they urge him to send her away. She wasn't their people. And Jesus seemed to agree. After a pregnant pause, he tells her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, that was true. That was his mission, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, but it was also true that those same lost sheep were in large part rejecting him. And it was also true that while his personal ministry may have been limited to, to the Jews in particular, he'd been sent to redeem the whole world. And he never turned anyone away who came to him for help. This woman hadn't been raised in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, she had no roots in Abraham or David. She was simply a lost unbeliever who had heard of Jesus and knew that she had no hope apart from him. Lord, help me, she begs. And now she kneels before him. Uh, this was a plea of faith. It was an act of worship that Jesus couldn't ignore. His heart went out to this woman, just as it had gone out to those other sheep not of this fold before, the centurion's servant uh, healed in Capernaum, for one. The demon-possessed man at, at Gerasenes. Uh, so his answer is, is that much more difficult to understand. It's like, one minute we're in well-known territory with Jesus. We've seen him heal people before. But now he sort of turns a corner and suddenly we find ourselves in a neighborhood that doesn't look so familiar. He replies to the woman, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. What's up with Jesus' attitude? You know, Bible scholars have been trying for years to somehow soften those words of our Lord. They say, like, Mel, maybe he's just joking with her, smiling, and she gets the joke. Maybe he's teaching her a lesson in humility or testing her faith. Maybe he was just tired that day, a little short-tempered as a result. Some commentators point out that the word he used for dog here is different than the one commonly used for the feral animals that roam the streets, the, the wild dogs. He uses the word for a family dog, a puppy. Though rather than being uh, insulted and rebuffed, the woman may have actually been encouraged by that. You know, a lap dog is like family, right? So, uh, but then maybe, you know, maybe that's making excuses for Jesus that, that aren't meant to be made. <clears throat> Matthew was writing this some 25 years after the fact and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If God had wanted it glossed over or softened some to put Jesus in a better light, it would have been easy to do. But he doesn't, does he? It's one of the things that makes the, the Bible so credible. It doesn't leave out those parts. The one thing it does teach us, though, is that Jesus dealt with each person who came to him in exactly the right way. He could look into their hearts, maybe even into their futures, and he knew what would be best for them. Because it wasn't glossed over, it teaches us that he deals with everyone as individuals. He knows our needs, and he's always concerned with providing for us. His primary concern is to bring us in, and then keep us in that saving faith to life everlasting. We always need to remember that, especially when our gracious Lord deals with us in ways that, that we just can't immediately understand 
or appreciate. You know, nothing we have to endure in this life is worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us and to us one day in the life to come. Our Lord, now her Lord, marvels at her love and her faith, even her humility. Yes, Lord, she replies, you're right, it's true. I am unworthy. I have no roots in Abraham or David. I have no right to your mercy by birth. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <clears throat> She's asking, just, just throw me a bone here. I've nowhere else to turn. Just a crumb from you, a morsel of mercy, will be more than enough to save my daughter. Even the family dog is handed a crumb under the table once in a while. She was right. Faith is the answer to a desperate heart. Faith trusts by, very, by its very nature. Faith asks for mercy. Faith requires little theological knowledge. Faith understands being unworthy, and faith delights even in the crumbs. But most important of all, faith receives an answer. O woman, he says, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly, Matthew tells us. No more fits or seizures, no more personality disorders, maybe uh, no more depression or thoughts of suicide or whatever her problem had been, physically or spiritually. She was her old self again. No more demons. See, faith also triumphs. So <clears throat> what about that not throwing the children's bread to the dogs? It's actually what Paul is talking about in our, in our second lesson this morning from Romans. In fact, he's combining two important issues. One, the fact that God is turning to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with his offer of salvation and a chance to, to be, for them to be his people. And two, does that mean that he's rejected the Jews forever? In chapters 9 and 10 of Romans, leading up to our, our reading this morning, Paul's been reviewing God's relationship with his chosen people, with the Israelites, people who are Jews by birth, just like Paul. And it's truly been an on-again, off-again sort of affair with his people frequently chasing after false gods. God must have felt sometimes like he was trying to herd cats, and he wasn't happy about it. And now, once again, because of their disobedience, he sent Paul, a former persecutor of Jesus' followers, as a now Christian witness to his former enemies, the non-Jews or Gentiles. And with more than just an olive branch, Paul has the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? That wasn't the way it was supposed to have worked. A reading of the Minor Prophets makes God's disappointment with his people obvious. Their worship and their justice were little more than a nod in the right direction. They were just kind of going through the motions. But their disobedience, their turning away from God time and time again, that goes back to their roots, like part of their DNA. We would call it a sinful nature. God made his covenant with them back in Genesis chapter 12 when he told Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How would that happen? Well, Jesus would come from Abraham's line. Blessed to be a blessing. A family for the not yet family. Chosen as God's people to reach out and enlarge God's people. Except they got sidetracked on that mission. Following the example of their kings, they, they took almost every wrong fork in the road that came along. 
They finally got caught up in being righteous as the way to earn God's ultimate favor. And they wouldn't let go of that after Jesus came along to be righteous for them. Perfectly righteous. Something they could never do. And they ended up rejecting him. God's own son. After all, they thought they were God's favorites. What could possibly trump that? Well, how about trumping God, how about rejecting God's real favorite, his son? But in truth, God's people are all the people who would follow him, Jew and Gentile. And God continually extends his mercy to more and more people. Salvation has come to the Gentile, Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 11, the section of scripture our, our second lesson comes from. And to the question, does this mean God has rejected his people? Paul responds emphatically, by no means. God doesn't give up on someone. He doesn't give up on anyone. God is love, and love never gives up. I think he even instilled a little bit of that attribute in all his creatures. Even the snail wouldn't give up until it reached the ark, and God wasn't about to. God never took back his offer of salvation to the Jews. The calling of God is irrevocable, Paul says. But the calling of God is going out to everyone, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of whatever it is you've made into a God by putting whatever it is in, in front of God in your life, giving it first place in your life. See, the encounter Jesus had with this, this woman of Tyre was really just a, a foreshadowing of this shift that was coming. You can make a pretty good case, actually, that we're the new Israel today, at least spiritually. We're God's people by faith. And it's our job to fulfill the job offered originally to the old Israel. One job, just one. Everywhere we go, people should see a little bit of Jesus reflected in you so that they could be drawn to him through you. God's people should live, they should act like God's people, shining lights in a world filled with the darkness of sin. We won't do it perfectly. We're not perfect, not yet, not this side of heaven. But God working through us can make a difference. People need to know that faith in Jesus allows us to transcend all our earthly sorrows and sufferings with a sure promise that our real home is somewhere beyond this world. That one day the love of God in Christ Jesus will take us by the hand and lift us out of this world of tears and carry us all the way to paradise. And all this is possible by that same simple faith of the Canaanite mother and the unfathomable love of God. So no matter what might befall you, no matter how, thing, how dark things might seem, and things seem pretty dark to some people these days, to remember there's always a better future one day if we just keep the faith. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.